we had a marvelous life of friendship and love and care. We worked very hard. We were cheated out of school because when there was cotton to be chopped or picked, those of us who were children of sharecroppers, we were in the field with our parents and grandparents. And so school was not was not an option for us during those times. We went when there was in the winter, in January and February and March, those months we were in school, part of April. But by May we were chopping cotton. So the last, you know, month of school we weren't there. And then in the fall we started to pick around Halloween. So no earlier than Halloween because we picked in October November, and we usually got the last fragments of the cotton, maybe the first part of December. So we missed a lot of school, and it was the norm. There wasn't a truant officer who came looking for us or anything like that. It was just the expectation, as my brother Lander said about the shoeshine parlor. It was just the way things were. Nimby, I always feel like it's and even listening to you talk about and share your memories even now, I always feel like it's um it's such an act of generosity to be able to hear these stories and to like to you know to laugh along with the memories, but also to you know to feel that wonder and, and all of that. And I feel like it's such a generous act. And as a reader, I appreciate it. And as a listener, I appreciate it. And so I'm really curious about as a writer, kind of what you gained from you know, from this experience of going through your memories and interviewing people and giving them to us. So from the book, is there anything that it might have given you or taught you either about yourself or your community or your family or shown you, you know, in a different light? I think there were so many things, but in writing it, realizing the resilience that my grandparents and those like them had to have just to survive. And not just to survive, but in a way that was loving and caring of others. Even the people that we work for. And I, and I, I believe I say this in the book somewhere that no, we never, we never owned the land that we worked on, but the people that we worked for were as kind as they could be in the situation that they were in. Now, they were not about to do anything that was going to upset the comfort of their lives, but they were not unkind to us as they could have been. You know, they, I mean, we lived in substandard housing. When I was eight years old, the house that we lived in was back off the road. We could see the Shelby Drive, but it was maybe half quarter of a mile, I would say. But the house burned down within, I don't know, it probably, I don't think it even took an hour. But we were all in bed when the house caught on fire. I think that my great grandmother knocked over a lamp that should have been turned off, you know, a kerosene lamp and hadn't been. But at any rate, the house was gone and everything in it, we were lucky to escape. And I do share that story in the book. But they had another house built for us and we were in it within a couple of months. 
because it was, there was no real foundation. It was put on concrete blocks. It was built up on concrete blocks, which we liked because we could get under the house and play. It was nice and cool to go under there. But it was just a four-room, it was a four-room house. Of course, there was no indoor plumbing. We went outside to get water. My grandmother, when I talk about resilience, I didn't know until later that she had cancer for a lot of the time that she was raising us. And But still, she ran that house such as it was. When I say that, we would go to the fields. She was not able to go to the fields. And she was like other older Black women, the Pittman's grandmother. They stayed home. They boiled water to wash the clothes, to clean the house, to make the food, that kind of thing. And going back and writing those things and remembering them, you know, that I saw that, that I was a part of that, that my grandparents endured. They survived. They thrived even, they would say, because we always had food to share. On Sundays, anybody who stopped by, there was always enough that if we were eating, and my Uncle Charlie always knew when to stop by because his wife was not that great a cook. And, uh, you know, so we would go through this thing of, okay, Uncle Charlie, come on. They called him Charlie, Charlie Strop was his nickname. But, you know, he would always have to be persuaded. And we knew he was going to be sitting and eating with us. But if not him, someone else. And my grandmother, she was not the exception. She was the rule. That's how we lived with one another. If I, if my family had it and yours needed it, then you had it and vice versa. And so writing the book reminded me of that and how there's such an absence or there seems to be an absence of that kind of neighboring, caring for neighbors. And maybe it still happens. I'm sure it still happens. You know, we read those accounts. But in the absence of all the media that we have now, all the ways of talking to people, my grandparents and us living, those of us living in that time, we didn't have telephones. Uh, we got a phone when I think I was 11 when we got our first telephone. It was a party line. That's another story. That's in the book, too. But everybody knew what was going on with everybody else. There were a couple of people who had cars in the community. My Uncle Osborne had an old truck. Mr. Buck had a truck. My Uncle Charlie, who was not a sharecropper, he would come and work with us on Saturdays. But during the week, he had gotten a job at a Navy hospital. And so we had ways to get about. But we did a lot of walking. We walked to church. Church was probably three miles. We walked, spent half a day there, and then walked home. But there wasn't anything that was going on that the other didn't know about when someone was sick or especially if they were seriously sick. So that was probably the biggest thing that the book gave me. And then a renewed love for, because by the time I started to write it, three of my siblings were dead already. You know, my oldest sister, Lorraine, who had 16 years older than I. She died when she was 47. So she was already gone. 
for a long time, my brother Charles, my brother Edroy, they all died young. And so just thinking about them again in the ways and what their lives had been, as short as they had been, but still the impact and the impressions that they had left on my life. And because of my passing it on or, you know, so I, I think it for me, it was a renewal of relationships. I'll say that a renewal of relationships, going back and getting mad at Ernestine and unmad at her again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it was really allowed me to say, you know, I came from nothing. But in other ways, I had everything because I had the things that matter. And that is the love and support that no matter what you do, no matter where you go, there is this community that loves you, that will always love you, that will have your back no matter what. When I go home next week for my cousin's funeral, his name was Herbert. He was 77, three years older than myself. He's a twin. His brother, Joseph, is a pastor. We grew up more like siblings than cousins. And I think that was something indicative of the time and the place that we were. But when I grow up, I mean, when I return next week, it'll be like I'm home again, even though I've not been there. Unfortunately, it seems what brings us together is a funeral. Too often it's not a wedding or, you know, we haven't done a family reunion forever. But I'll see all those people will be gathered there to say, farewell to him. And in the meal that we'll share afterwards, there'll be stories and, you know, and I'll be right where I need to be, right where I've never left in a sense. That's absolutely beautiful. Do we have time for one more reading? Sure. Let me see. Let me tell you about my uncle Pace. Do I have his? Because he was a really interesting character. And I can't believe it. There he is, page 11, Uncle Pates. So he was someone like one of the people that I tell you everybody knew and everybody looked out for him. And I believe in this reading, you'll see why. My Uncle Pates was perhaps the most intriguing of all the adults I knew as a child. He never married or had children but worked as hard as any family man. At the same time, his affinity for corn whiskey, which some called white lightning or moonshine, the latter name referred to the illegal stills that were operated by the light of the moon. I have that in parentheses. That made him prone to falling down. For that reason, friends and family watched out for him along the road. In those cases, if offered, he would accept a ride home. I never saw him drive anything but a wagon or a plow. Uncle Charlie and Uncle Osborne owned vehicles and would have taken him anywhere he wanted to go, but in general, he preferred to walk. Left crippled by a fluke accident when he was an adolescent, I never knew him to be able to stand up straight. Like Uncle Peter, who in later life was bent over from arthritis, Uncle Pates would have stood several inches taller had he been able to straighten his body. Nevertheless, 
he was not one to complain about his condition, nor did he seem to think of himself as any different from any other man. Aunt Gracie would never be able to look at him without feeling tightness in her chest and stinging in her eyes as she squeezed back the tears that he did not want her to shed. She was the one who had playfully stood behind the chair and whisked it away just as her brother had relaxed his body to sit down. Or so the story went. The fall broke his right hip that went uncorrected. His gait at once fascinated and saddened me. I wondered if he felt pain with each step. He moved like a giraffe. When I close my eyes, I can see him now moving forward in slow motion. He raised and lowered his head with alternating steps. Left foot forward, head bent down. Right foot forward, head up. Yes, sort of like a giraffe or perhaps a rocking chair with legs and feet attached. The bobbing motion propelled him along, and all things considered, he made pretty good time. Some days he used a walking cane, but not often. Monday through Friday, he would work from sunup to sundown and until noon on Saturday. By three o'clock Saturday, he would have sipped his way through a good portion of the half-pint bottle he carried in the hip pocket of his overalls. The effects of the whiskey seemed to allow him to be someplace else and perhaps someone else as well. So from Saturday afternoon until Sunday evening, Uncle Pates had a grand time. We knew that because he was gregarious by nature. In the flow of normal conversation, he would grin and remind us, Every day is Christmas. Ain't that right, Mr. Elbro or Miss Alice, depending on which of my grandparents he was speaking to. But every day wasn't Christmas. In truth, Uncle Pates and countless colored men like him were trapped in a never-ending maze with no path leading to freedom. Even more than my generation, they had no realistic dream of living long enough nor working hard enough to advance to a level that would afford them some of life's simple pleasures. He never had a paid vacation, or any other kind for that matter, except what came after the alcohol had clouded his thinking. Each day stretched before him as one more to be gotten through. The sweet, strong, clear liquid that he sipped on the weekends allowed him some small measure of escape from the lifestyle he inherited. Decades of drinking white lightning caused his liver to harden and his urinary tract to protest whenever he emptied his bladder. I remember being in the cotton fields when he would head for the bushes. Over time, the trips took longer and longer. And when he returned to pick up his sack or hoe, the pain that he endured while shielded by the trees and thickets was etched into his pallid face for all to see. My uncle died a slow but sudden death. The white lightning petrified his lanky body by degrees, one weekend at a time. When his life-sustaining organs got tired of the continued mistreatment 
and disregard, they sat him down in his favorite rocking chair on Uncle Charlie's front porch, and in a span of a few minutes, he was gone. Uncle Pace was 74. Wow. Nimby, thank you so much for sharing your life with us and the book. And can I ask before you go, where can we buy Come This Way, There Is an Exit? You know, it's the only place I have it, Yvonne, is here in my basement. I can, you have my email address. If you can share that, I would, I would send the book anywhere. It's $10. Okay. And yeah, that's the only way to get it. I okay. it was self-published. And so it's an honor to have been asked to share any part of it with you. And I thank you for this time and this opportunity. And it was a pleasure meeting you. It was a pleasure to meet you and to and to hear you read and to share this time with you. And so for the listeners, if anyone would like to pick up the book, please message me and I will pass along NIMBY's email. And then that way you can buy your very own copy. 